Well, good morning. It's great to see you this morning. My name is Bryce. I'm uh, the pastor of spiritual formation here at the table. And um, for those of you who are uh, regulars at the table here, you probably already know that uh, my family and I moved here. We're coming up on a year uh, since we moved uh, to Colorado to, to join you here at the table. And uh, this last week has been great as the weather's warming up. I feel like, you know, we've survived our first winter in Colorado. Um, it's been interesting even watching you guys all come in this morning. It, it seems like we're pretty evenly divided on if it's actually going to hit 70 uh, this afternoon. Um, some of you are dressed like it's already 70. Some of you are convinced it's still going to be winter in this after, yeah, the afternoon. Um, but I, I've loved just, like I said, over the last week or two, as the weather has warmed up, it feels like life is returning. Um, our neighbors that have been hibernating all winter are coming out. Uh, haven't seen them in a couple of months. Uh, my kids were on spring break this last week, and I... Um, incentivized them to help me with uh, some yard work and do this, this backyard project to get our backyard ready for summer. Um, it feels like the world is coming back to life. And this morning, as we look at this passage, uh, this very well-known passage of Jesus feeding 5,000 people, I think we can read this passage and think that this sense of like, Summer is on the horizon, and it's warming up, and we're all going to be outside and enjoying the outdoors uh, again. And we can sort of read that into this passage and imagine that this is a story about Jesus saying, hey, let's have a picnic. Uh, let's all get together. Uh, you can kind of imagine the kids lining up for the watermelon eating contest and the, uh, what's the, like, the sack races, you know, um, and think like this is this kind of neat little pleasant thing that Jesus is, is doing here. What is, what is going on in this passage? What's going on in this passage? What I want to suggest to you this morning is that what's going on in this passage is Jesus is posing a question to us. And the question Jesus is asking us is this, where do you find life? Where do you find life? And by life, I don't mean simply existence. Uh, we're not talking about just the biological conditions that make life possible. Rather, by life, I mean the fullness of life, that fullness of life that uh, Maria read about in our assurance of forgiveness, that Jesus says, I've come that you may have life and have it to the fullest, life abundantly. That sense of longing that awakens in us at the beginning of spring when we start thinking about warmer days ahead when we start thinking about late nights and lingering over meals with people that we enjoy being with. Uh, those, those moments, those times together that make life feel like it's really worth living, that, that's the sort of life we're talking about. Where do you find life? What are the, what are the things that bring fullness to life in your life? That's the question, and so in order to answer that question, looking at this passage, I want to simply draw your attention to three features of this passage, this narrative. And the first thing that I want you to see is what the crowd wants, what the, crowd, what the crowds want. This narrative of Jesus feeding the 5,000 uh, is, is, is a miracle, but it's 
perhaps the most famous of Jesus' miracles. It's, um, this is the only miracle of Jesus that is told in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So there's four different kind of accounts or perspectives on this narrative, um, and they all make the note that Jesus feeds this crowd immediately after Herod kills John the Baptist. And if you were to, in Luke, if you were to back up just a few chapter or a few verses before what Maria read for us, uh, it, it would note there that, that Herod has just um, killed, he beheaded John the Baptist. And then immediately after that, Jesus and his disciples, uh, they leave Galilee, they leave the towns and villages of Galilee where they've been doing most of their ministry, and they take a boat across the Sea of Galilee to this place, place called Bethsaida. And, of course, we don't really know this. I didn't know this before this week, but um, after having studied this passage a little bit, it turns out that Bethsaida is sort of, um, sort of the boondocks. <laughs> it's the other side. It's very remote. I mean, it says in this passage in verse 12 when the disciples are freaking out because the people aren't going to have food, the disciples say this is a very desolate place. And they're concerned that it's remote and there's nowhere to get food. And the people who lived in this area are people who, uh, this was an area that was known for, um, the residents were people who wanted to overthrow the Roman imperial powers. And so, you know, try to think of how to say this delicately. Like, this is the sort of place where right-wing militia groups congregate, okay? Um, this is the place where people like their guns, they've got them at the ready. This is an area of, that is a hotbed of revolutionary resistance to the Roman government. There are freedom fighters that are hiding out in the hill country. This is an area that was known to uh, be sympathetic to the zealots, who was a sect of Judaism that believed in armed resistance to the Roman government. So that's going on, but it's just, this is all now happening in the background of Herod, who is the Roman ruler in Jerusalem, has just cut off the head of John the Baptist, who is a Jewish religious leader. And so there's this sense of like, there's this fervor. And so Jesus and his disciples are trying to get away. They're trying to get peace and rest. And as they get there, there's this enormous crowd. And it says, if you read, um, like I said, this is in all four Gospels. If you read in John's account, in John chapter 6, it actually says there, that the crowd was determined to, make to take Jesus and by force make him king. So this idea that there are people who are there just ready for Jesus to kind of light up the 4th of July festivities or something is not, it's not this is like a rally. <laughs> um, these people are ready to go. They're going to make Jesus king by force. The crowd is a crowd of zealots. They're angry about government oppression of their people and of their religious practices, and they're ready to fight. And then Jesus shows up, and they think, yes. Yes, this guy is a, he's a Jew. He's a religious leader. This is exactly the guy that we have been waiting for who's going to lead us in armed rebellion. And so what does the crowd want? They want freedom from oppression. Um, and rightly so in many ways. I mean, Herod is sort of the embodiment of, of, of government corruption. 
Herod is not, um, Herod uses the Jewish people for his own benefit. He imprisons and even murders people who oppose him. And so the crowds are looking for life, but they're looking for life through revolution. And by the way, uh, you probably noticed when uh, Maria read this, it says that there were 5,000 men there. It right? doesn't mention the women, doesn't mention the children, and uh, most, most scholars think that that's just the common uh, kind of heads of household is the way that they would have counted. That was the common way of counting crowds in that day. I read one scholar commentary this last week who actually suggested that maybe only men are mentioned because it's the men who show up for like the revolutionary rally. Um, but this is what's going on there. They're thinking, okay, we want freedom. We're going to find life through a revolution. As long as we are under the oppression of the government, we can only just merely exist, but we are longing for life. And I think it's interesting to understand that background because there are these strong culture war overtones to what's happening here. And we know that we too are living through a time where there is this sense that there are warring factions that are increasingly hostile and polarized towards one another. And these people here are willing to take Jesus and make him their leader who will bring them life by overthrowing and defeating their, their enemies by force. That's what the crowds want. So what does Jesus give them? Well, I think if we understand that background, we have to see that what Jesus gives them must have been a real letdown. <laughs> um, they want to fight. They want weapons training, and Jesus' response has got to be an incredible letdown because he gives them bread. And I think it's helpful to just pause on that point for a second and realize that so often when we come to God, we are coming searching for a cure for a specific ailment. And when Jesus is offering healing, that healing initially often feels like a letdown. Um, probably few of us here have contemplated armed rebellion as the path towards life, but who knows? I mean, <laughs> we're living through crazy times, right? There have been multiple attempts in the news that we're all aware of. But all of us have approached God with certainty about what God should do in our lives. Uh, God, I need this job, so you should give it to me. Jesus, I really want to be married. I don't want to be single. God, I need you to remove this struggle from my life. Or maybe, God, I need you to change this other person or these other people or this other, you know, these people with these crazy political views that won't shut up. I need you to change them. And so it's easy and so common for us to come to Jesus with certainty about what we think he should do for us. And in essence, what we're doing is we're coming to Jesus expecting a cure and he's offering us not just a cure for symptoms, but he's offering us redemption. He's offering us healing. But at first, that healing, that redemption can, can feel disappointing because he's not going to do exactly what we want him to do. The crowds are looking for a revolutionary leader who is going to lead them in weapons training and the overthrow of the government. And it says in verse 11, that Jesus spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed them. Healed those who had need. 
They want a revolution, and Jesus wants to talk to them about redemption. He wants to offer them redemption in both words and deeds. So that's what's happening. And then the day is growing late, and the disciples come to Jesus, and they say, hey, Jesus, like this has been a great conference that you're putting on here. All these people have come to see you. But you kind of get to the point in the schedule where it says dinner on your own. Um, but we're out here in the middle of nowhere, and Jesus, these people are going to starve to death. And this is not going to be a great conference if everybody starves to death. So we need to send them away. They need to go back and find somewhere that they can find food. But Jesus says no. And the disciples bring what food they have, some bread and a couple of fish. And Jesus performs this miracle, and he multiplies the bread. And the five loaves of bread are enough to feed 5,000 or maybe fifteen or 20,000 people. So why does Jesus give them bread? They want life through freedom from oppression. And Jesus responds with the very underwhelming, very strange, if you think about, I mean, of all the miracles Jesus could do. Just t- when does the miracle even happen? <laughs> it's not even clear. There, there are loaves of bread, and they distribute the bread, and it's enough for thousands and thousands of people. Why does Jesus give them bread? Well, I think for us, when we think about bread, somebody brings us bread, we think, well, this is the beginning of a great meal. More food is coming, right? You have your bread, you maybe have your little like oil and vinegar to dip your bread in. Uh, It's just the beginning of something to tide you over until the real meal comes. Or we think about bread as carbohydrates, uh, right? But, But when Jesus gives bread, it would have had a much deeper significance. Uh, because first, bread in the ancient world meant relationships. It meant relationship. Uh, throughout the ancient world, and through many uh, Eastern cultures still to this day, um, relationships, contracts, covenants, agreements were always sealed by eating a meal together. And, and we can certainly understand that eating with somebody implies intimacy, right? Having somebody into your home for a meal implies a level of, of relationship, of trust, of relational generosity that you're extending. And so when Jesus is saying, I'm feed, when Jesus feeds the crowd with bread, he's inviting them into relationship. But more than that, bread in the ancient world meant life. Bread in the ancient world meant life. I mean, we have so many food options available to us that bread seems like the appetizer or the, the side you know, dish to go with the main course. And we don't even think about this. But in the ancient world, people almost never ate meat. Uh, bread was the source of sustenance and nutrition for the vast majority of people, the vast majority of the time. And so bread became symbolic of more than just eating a meal, but bread became symbolic of life itself. I mean, if you think about in the Lord's Prayer, when the disciples ask Jesus, teach us how to pray, when, when they get to the part where Jesus tells us how to pray for God to meet our needs, he tells us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And so our daily bread, if God gives us our daily bread, it means God's given us all that we need. All that we need for life, we have life if we have bread. We have, if we have bread, we have everything that we need. And surely the crowds um, understood that life was essential, or that bread was essential to life. 
And any, any crowd in the ancient Near East would have understood that bread was the essence of life. But more than that, for this crowd in particular, religious Jews, they would have understood um, the reference back, another reference back to Israel when God brings his people out of slavery in Egypt, uh, and they cross through the Red Sea, and they journey through the desert to the promised land. God gives them manna to eat, right? They're out here, and they've left Egypt. They've left slavery. They get out into the desert. There's nothing to eat, and they think, gosh, wasn't it great when we lived in Egypt, when we were slaves, because we always had pots of meat to eat? <laughs> they didn't, by the way. Short-term memory loss. Um, but what does God do? He, he miraculously provides manna. And so every morning there was like this white, flaky, actually manna means what is it? We don't really know what it was, but it was somehow it was bread. And every morning God's people would wake up and they would go out and they would collect the manna and they had bread for the day. And so God provides manna for his people. God miraculously provided uh, that manna for his people just as God now miraculously provides this bread Jesus miraculously provides bread. And so what is he doing? Well, he's saying to these people, you are looking for a leader who will give you what you want, but I am the God who gives you the bread of heaven. I'm the God who gives you life. You're looking for a leader who will give you life through violence. You're looking through for a leader who will give you life that comes at the expense of somebody else but I am the one who gives you life because I'm the one who created life itself. And so what he's saying to the crowds here and what he's saying to us is that the things that we think will give us life are actually far too small. They're far too insignificant. They're like curing a symptom when Jesus is promising total healing, the redemption of our lives, the overthrow of death itself. I think when we look at this um, miracle from our perspective in 2022, if we're honest, I mean, isn't this a weird miracle? Doesn't it look kind of underwhelming? Um, here's what I mean. We live in a time where people do amazing spectacles just for the point of doing amazing spectacles. Like my kids were asking me the other day about, remember the guy who jumped from space a couple years ago? For like hours, he went up in this balloon and it got to 25 kilometers above sea level and then he jumped and there was a, uh, a free, he, like he had a free fall for almost five minutes. I mean, you can watch the video on YouTube. It's amazing, right? <laughs> or um, David Blaine, you know who David Blaine is? Every year he's this illusionist who does some crazy stunts. Um, I was looking this up this week. In 2006, I think, he like submersed himself in a globe filled with water for a week. I don't even know like, how that works, <laughs> obviously. But the whole point is to do something incredible that can't be explained for people to go, wow, that's amazing. Um, and here, Jesus is doing these miracles, but they're things like healing cripples, multiplying loaves of bread, and sure, I mean, maybe in the ancient world, like these people hadn't seen movies, they didn't know about special effects, they didn't know about Hollywood, 
And maybe like in that time, in that place, like this, is, this was great for people. But like you guys have seen Harry Potter, right? Like you know how Albus Dumbledore feeds crowds, right? He like claps and there's like a feast, right? And Jesus, you know, like it's just sort of underwhelming, isn't it? Like Jesus... Dumbledore's feast is like turkey and gravy and stuffing, and Jesus just has bread? So underwhelming. Why doesn't Jesus do anything like that? He just kind of passes out the bread, and it lasts longer than anybody expected, but it's not that impressive. It's kind of weird. Um, I think we have to um, take a step back and understand that when we look at the miracles of Jesus— we tend to think of them in terms of the ways that we think about other people doing other spectacles. Like the point of doing something amazing is to show how amazing somebody is. And then we look at Jesus and we're like, is he is any more amazing than that? I mean, why isn't he like throwing fireballs or, uh, you know, hopping on a broomstick and twirling around and dropping loaves of bread from out of the sky from people or something? Um, is, this, is this really as amazing? But, but as we think about Jesus' miracles, if we think about his miracles as acts that are intended to call attention to his power, they're a little bit disappointing, but is that really what Jesus' miracles are, are all about? Jürgen Moltmann was a um, German theologian, philosopher, and he, he, he says this, He says, Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. Okay, They're not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They are the only truly natural things in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. Do you see what what Moltmann is saying here? What what he's saying is, is that we think of miracles as Jesus sort of like hitting pause on nature hitting pause on the way things really are in order to do something supernatural. Moltmann is saying, no, the world as we experience it is not the way that the world is supposed to be. The world as we experience it is not the world as God created it. It is not the world as God intended it. The world as God created it didn't involve people being born blind. Uh, the last couple of weeks, we've looked at some of Jesus' other miracles where he, he, he heals a, uh, uh, he raises to life a girl who was a 12-year-old girl who had died. The world wasn't created. The world that God created was not intended to be a world in which 12-year-olds die. The world as God created it didn't involve people being unable to walk. It didn't involve hunger. It didn't involve disease. It didn't involve injustice. It didn't involve... Um, natural disasters, killing people. And so when Jesus heals the lame, when he brings a 12-year-old girl back to life, when he feeds a hungry crowd, he's not hitting pause on nature. Rather, he is restoring the world to the way it was originally intended to be. He's He's breathing life back into a world that has been plagued by death. That's what Jesus is doing. When Jesus multiplies the bread... He's pointing back all the way to the beginning, to the way that God created the world, a world that was 
abundant with food, a world in which hunger didn't exist. And when Jesus feeds the 5,000, he's pointing forward to a world that, which is to come, whereas it tells us in the book of Revelation that we will feast at the wedding supper of the Lamb, where there will be wine and there will be bread, where we will know God face to face, where all of our hungers will finally be satisfied. That is the kind of life that Jesus is offering. That's what real life looks like. And all of our longings now are but an echo, but a hope that is, on, that is, that is only satisfied and ultimately satisfied in Christ, who is the one who gives us life. That's what Jesus is doing here. All of our longings now are like eating crumbs that maybe provide, a, you know, satiate our hunger for a moment, our longing for, for real life. They're but an echo of a hope that is satisfied in Christ. Jean-Paul Sartre is a, um, was a uh, French existentialist philosopher. And he has a very famous passage where he says this. Jean-Paul Sartre is an, is an atheist. He says, that God does not exist, I cannot deny. Okay? That God does not exist, I cannot deny. That my whole being cries out for God, I cannot forget. What is he saying? He's saying, I don't believe that God exists, but I long for what the hope, the promise of God provides. There's a hunger that each of us knows, longing to be satisfied, and we try to fill it with things like, you know, I'm redoing my backyard to get ready for the summer. Like, I'm literally doing that. <laughs> we, we, we have this hunger, and we try to Fill it by going to a great meal, by going to a concert, by the beauty, with the beauty of the mountains, with friends or sex or work, and at best they are but crumbs that satiate our hunger for a moment. But Jesus gives us the bread of life. That's what Jesus gives. Jesus gives us the bread of life. So the third feature of this passage then that I want you to look at is this, how? How does Jesus give us life? Well, there's a hint in this passage that Luke leaves us. And it's, it's not as clear in the English translation that we're reading, but in, in uh, verse 16 here, it says that Jesus took the fish and the bread, and it says he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing over them. And then there's a period there in the middle of verse 16. In, in Greek, there, uh, the, the Greek New Testament doesn't have punctuation in it. So that period kind of obscures the fact that, that what it actually says there in the Greek is it says, uh, he broke the loaves, uh, well, he took the loaves and the fish, he said a blessing, and he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. In the Greek, there are two verbs. He took the bread, and then these two verbs, he broke and he, or he, he blessed and he broke. He took the loaves, and he blessed and he broke. If you move forward further in the narrative, you get to the last night of Jesus' life. As he celebrates the Passover supper with his disciples in an upper room, and he institutes the Lord's Supper, and there we find those two verbs again. It says that he took the bread and he blessed and he broke. He blessed and he broke. 
Jesus says, this is my body, and he blessed and he broke, and that points us to the way that Jesus gives life. The reality is that there are basically two ways that we try to find life. One, I think the most uh, common in our cultural moment is to look inside ourselves. And we say, I find life within myself, and so I find life by trying to summon the strength, the energy, the courage to make this happen, or we find life at the expense of another. Sometimes we do that in very overt, aggressive ways. Sometimes we do that in subtle ways. Sometimes we do it through mutual, you know, mutually using each other. We get life by taking it from somebody else. But Jesus is saying, you will find life as I am broken for you. Jesus gives life by, give, by being broken in order to give his life to us. Tim Keller uh, points out that most of us don't think about the reality that everything we eat, almost, except for like salt, comes from something that died. You know, whether it's, uh, you know, meat or vegetables, something had to die. And if bread remains unbroken, we will be broken, right? If there's bread and I don't break the bread, I will be broken, I will perish, I will eventually disintegrate. Bread has to be broken in order to be eaten, in order to provide life. And Jesus is saying, I will be broken to give you life. On the cross, Jesus looks out at those who are killing him, and he says, Father, forgive them, and then he dies. He blesses them, and then he breaks. He's saying to us, to the crowds here and to us, I will be broken so that you may be made whole. I will die in order to give you life. He absorbs sin, he absorbs judgment, he absorbs death in order to give us life. Think about the implications, the inverse. If he remains whole, if he remains whole, I will remain broken. Yet if he is broken, we will receive life. In the um, 1640s, during the English Civil War, the English Civil War, um, I'm sure you don't know off the top of your head, was fought between the um, royalists and the parliamentarians. The parliamentarians, the roundheads, had a, uh, uh, wanted a democratic form of government. The royalists were supporters of King Charles, who were called the Cavaliers, and Oliver Cromwell, the Lord Protector of England, was the leader of the uh, parliamentarians at the time. And he was leading the parliamentarians in the English Civil War, this fight against their own uh, people. And during the course of fighting, uh, they caught a traitor, somebody who had uh, deserted his line and gone over and fought against them. And so they caught this young man, and he uh, was to be sentenced to death. This young man uh, was to be sentenced to death uh, that evening. He was to be executed um, when the evening curfew bell rang. And um, this sentence was particularly bitter because this young man was engaged to be married. And so the scene was set... The firing squad was there. The light was growing dim. They were waiting for the curfew bell to ring. 
and the sun set, and the bell never rang. And after they had waited for a while, Oliver Cromwell sent some soldiers to investigate, and they went over to the church, and they went to the bell tower, and they found coming down out of the bell tower a young woman, the fiancé of this soldier who was to be executed. And they brought her to Oliver Cromwell, and there she was, bruised and bleeding. And she climbed up into the bell tower and wrapped her body around the massive cast iron clapper in the bell. And uh, the church sexton was an old man. He was deaf. He had gone to the church. He had pulled on the rope. He didn't know that it didn't ring. And then he went home. And this young woman, wrapping her body around the clapper of that bell, absorbed its ring in her body for the sake of her beloved. And when she was summoned by Oliver Cromwell to account for her actions, she wept as she showed him her bruised and bleeding hands and sides. And Oliver Cromwell's heart was moved, and he said to her, your lover shall live because of your sacrifice. Curfew shall not ring tonight. If she remains whole, his life is extinguished. But if she is broken, he is set free to live. And friends, that is a picture of the gospel. Jesus was broken to make you whole. Jesus died so that you might live. So let's just ask briefly, what do we do with that? So what? What this passage shows us is that understanding the gospel is the key to life now. In, in John's version of this account, it says, if you believe this, you will have eternal life. And we tend to think about eternal life as sort of life after death. And yes, that's part of it, but, but it would probably be better to translate that phrase as life that is eternal. It's the fullness of life that Jesus is talking about. Life not just in the life to come, life after death, but real life now. Understanding that Jesus gives us life because he is broken on our behalf is the key to experiencing real life now. What does Jesus say to his disciples when they come to him and, and, and they say, Jesus, send the crowds away because they're going to starve? In verse 13, um, when we read this, you know, they say, Jesus, they're going to starve, send them away. And Jesus responds, well, you give them something to eat. Um, but if you were to look at the Greek, the word you there is, is emphatic. He's saying you are the ones responsible to give them something to eat. Jesus is saying to them and to us, I want you to be the ones who bring life into the world. It's, it's fascinating if you look at this. Like I said, it's not entirely clear when or where the miracle happens, but Jesus blesses and breaks the bread and then he hands it to the disciples and they take the bread of life to the crowd. And Jesus is saying to them and to us, I want you to be the ones who bring life into the world.
But the strange irony is this. Jesus is looking at the crowds or at the disciples. He's looking at us and saying, you're going to bring what you have, right? It's the disciples' bread. It's the disciples' fish that they bring. And Jesus says, I want you to take the resources that you have, which are woefully insufficient to do the work I'm calling you to do, and I want you to go out and do it. And what he's telling us is that it's only when we know that we don't have the resources to accomplish what he has called us to do that God shows up and works through us. It's only when we know that we don't, that it's only when we know that we have finite and insufficient resources and we look to Jesus who is broken in order to make us whole that we find that he is more than sufficient. Well, let me pause and see um, if there are any questions for the Q&A. Okay, there are no questions So let me pray for us, and then we will come to the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray that you would help us to experience, to feast, to take into our bodies uh, the life that you offer us. Jesus, we thank you that you don't simply come and say, I'm God, I want to heal you, but you, um, in such uh, rich imagery, show us that you are the one who feeds us, that you are the one who heals us, that you are the one who satisfies us. And so I pray this morning that you would help us to look in faith uh, to your work, that you would help us to look to the cross, Jesus, where you were broken so that we might be made whole. And as we come and celebrate, as we take the bread and the wine into our bodies, that our faith uh, would be restored, that we might live today, this afternoon, tomorrow, this coming week, knowing that we have already embarked on life, real life, life that is not just existence, life that is Uh, the fullness of all that you intended it to be. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. It was on the night that he was betrayed that Jesus took bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, and he said, this is my body that is broken for you. Take and eat. I am broken so that you might be made whole. After they had eaten... He took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. At the table, we uh, take communion family style. I'm going to invite you to come forward in in groups of about 10 or 12. Um, And and I've noticed this uh, last couple weeks, so let me just say this. I don't know if it'll be relevant this morning, Um, but it seems like a group of 10 or 12 comes and we take the Lord's Supper together and then a group of like 30 or 40 comes. We can do more than two you know, servings on each side here. Uh, we might not need to this morning, that's okay, but uh, just putting that out there. These are the Lord's gifts to feed the Lord's people. This is Jesus' table and so he invites those of you who are looking to him in faith to come and be made whole. Please come and let's celebrate together.